Matthew 28, and we'll be reading verses 19 through 20. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful to be able to sing, uh, not just with our minds and our lips, uh, but with our hearts, the truest part of our hearts, that all we have is Christ. And to that we add our hallelujah, that that is all we have. We don't have anything else. We have no righteousness to qualify us. We have no goodness that merits us. We have no lovability that affords us uh, acceptability with you. Father, we have nothing except Christ. But Father, if we have only Christ, then we are fully and 100% complete. There is nothing that we lack. And so we add our hallelujah again to the reality that Jesus is all that we have and he's all that we need. Father, thank you for the opportunity to seeing that all we know is grace. There is no other disposition towards us as your people because of Christ. All we have are benefit. All we have is bonus. All we have is unconditional acceptance. And Father, that is an amazing thing to sing. Father, yet you've given us an incredible mission. Father, you have said that it is your mercy that we have this mission, that we have ministry And so I pray that we would make access of this mercy that you have given to us, that we would be faithful, that we would be obedient, that we would be uh, encouraged and emboldened to go take the mercy that we've received and the grace that we so freely receive and dump it out just as freely onto people who don't deserve it. Father, allow us to be as liberal as you are with our proclamation of the gospel. Allow us to be as generous as you are with the grace that we have received from you to other people. Father, let us be just over the top in our love for other people, just like you have been over the top with us. Father, it is an amazing thing to be loved by an eternal God. What a blessing it is to not fear death or to fear anything else that hinders us in this life. But Father, there are many people who do not know that love. So give us a heart for them, just like you had a heart for us. And we pray these things through Christ. Amen. This is the final opportunity for me to preach with you uh, to you this summer, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to do that. Grateful to be back again. Again, I take it an honor to be here where Brad normally stands. Uh, It is a wonderful thing to follow uh, where he is ministering. Uh, But I want to, uh, actually Brad has asked me to preach on Acts chapter 29, Um, and so I was excited. I said, yeah, I'll preach Acts 29, that's fine, that sounds like a great chapter uh, of the Bible. And uh, then when we were done with the conversation, I immediately looked up Acts 29 and realized, there is no Acts 29. And I realized what he meant. Ah, he doesn't want me to preach on the text of Acts 29, because that doesn't actually exist. What he wanted me to actually talk about is what happens now after the New Testament church. Like, it's kind of like, think of Acts 28, dot, 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 what next? That's what Brad wanted me to preach on. It took me a minute to figure that out. Uh, But I got it. I did it. I did okay. I made it work. 
so, so Brad gave me the opportunity to talk today about the mission of the church. This was uh, a big highlight for me as I was preparing for church planting. Uh, I've been through several classes or courses or um, like uh, internships or uh, assessment periods on this idea of church planting. And a lot of it, the very tip of the spear of those conversations had to do with mission or missionality, what it means to live your life on mission, that uh, what basically what is your church plant doing if it's not accomplishing any sort of mission? And so it was a hot topic back in uh, all of my training and assessment times. And because church planting is really cool, it's where all the cool kids go to do ministry, uh, we had this idea of like missionality is this cool thing to do, right? And so we had all this conversation about, yo, bro, what's your mission? And what's your church's mission? And what is Good Shepherd Bible Church? What's our mission, man? It's just a kind of a cool, hot topic, and so a lot of people talked about it. And what it did, because I'm not traditionally a cool kid, is I got really nervous. And I got really antsy, because I was basically wringing my hands, and I'm like, oh man, that's a good question. We don't need to just start churches just for the sake of starting churches. Our churches need to have a mission. They need to have something to do. And so I got to thinking, like, well, what is our church's mission? What's going to set our church apart from all the other churches? What is going to help our church grow to the thousands and keep the other churches really, really small? What is going to make our church succeed? We are going to crush it, but what are we going to do? So it led to a lot of conversations about kind of like what's the niche, what's my kind of flavor of the month when it came to church work, you know, are we going to support this group or are we going to lean towards this kind of doctrine? Are we going to wave this flag? Are we going to be doing this kind of advocacy? Are we going to be kind of wearing this brand of t-shirt? What are we going to do? So I did like any good pastor does. I consulted my Bible of like, what's one kind of like verse I can slap onto what I wanted to do and say, this is what God wants us to do. And what I soon realized is, hold up, that's, this has nothing to do with the kind of conversation that Jesus had with his own disciples about what it means to live on mission. And so I actually had to hit the reset button. I had to kind of put away all of the cool swag and I kind of had to actually come to grips with God a little bit and start to listen to his voice and say, God, no, for real, what do you want the church to do? How... How can our little tiny church, how can it help in some way? Can we be useful at all? Do you, do you want us? Can, can we be on your team, Jesus? Is there anything we can do? And I was astonished with what I learned. Suffice it to say, if you were to go to our church website and look up our church's mission, I think you would be probably unimpressed. Because it would probably just sound like all the other old school mission statements out there regarding churches. The mission of our church is to proclaim the gospel so that all people everywhere will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. And so far to this date, I will let you know that our mission statement has not sold any level of t-shirts, right? We've not been asked for uh, any sort of like copycat material. No churches out there like, like hacking off of us and growing to the thousands. And really our church has remained fairly 
small in the three-year period. We've experienced growth, but it kind of hasn't been cool. We're not the cool kids on the block. But yet I will say our mission goes forward. And by God's grace, God has graciously allowed us to be part of the team. And it's been wonderful. So what is your mission? What is our mission? Because what I found out as I asked Jesus, Jesus, what is your mission for us? What do you want us to do? What I found out is that none of us have different missions. We all actually have, as churches, one mission. We only have one thing to do. We have one thing that we, when we wake up, either on a Sunday or Monday through Saturday, we have one thing we ought to be doing as church people or as a church collectively or as the capital C church across this world. We have one thing to be doing. And it's all the same. It's not different. Though it might take on different expressions and different contexts might have a little bit of a shape or a flavor, and that's probably what the cool kids were all picking up on. It might have a different flavor. It might look like certain kinds of brands, or it might start waving in many ways different colored flags or something like that. The reality is the church's mission only goes forward in one way. We're only all about doing the same thing. And in particular, it's described in two ways in Jesus' words and in our Gospels here. You have two ways of kind of saying the same thing. Make disciples. That comes from Matthew 28, what we just read. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Or you can turn to Mark and hear Mark's rendition of the same thing where Jesus actually substitutes the ideas of make disciples and he gives us the how and he says, preach the gospel to all nations. Make disciples by preaching the gospel. That's the mission. That's the whole thing. That's what Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. This is when Jesus invites you onto the team This is the playbook. And it's got one page. And it's got one line. And it's make disciples by preaching the gospel. There is no other thing. There's no other thing to be doing. There's no other mission to be about. It's the thing. I could read you uh, Mark's rendition. He said to them, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. Now I'll let Brad handle uh, verses 17 through 18 in that, however he wants to do that. But I will look to handle verses 15 through 16. You might ask yourself, well, if our mission, our one mission is to make disciples, and you start looking at the life of Jesus, you start realizing that that was his main mission. His main mission was to make disciples, recruit followers, bring people underneath his teaching and follow his way of life. Well, how did he do that? In the very ways that he described there in Mark, he declared the gospel to them, The very first words out of his mouth are, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his good news. I am here. I am the good news you've always longed for. Turn to me. 
And then he demonstrated it with signs and acts. And this is what the miracles and all the things that Jesus did tangibly with people, this is what he was there to express. The thing you can't lift, I will lift. The things you can't see, I will give you sight for. The things you can't hear, I will open your ears to hear. When your legs don't walk, I will heal them. When your dead are dead and buried, I will raise them. When it comes to the impossible of getting right with God, I will make you right with God. This was the good news of Jesus coming to us and doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so he declared that with his words and he demonstrated it by his actions. This was picked up in Luke, uh, where uh, actually in the, in the uh, book of the Acts of the Apostles, we start to learn the early life of the church. They picked up right where he left off. In fact, Luke says uh, that I've written to you in the first book. This is his gospel of Luke. He says, I began to tell you all that Jesus began to do and teach. And the hint there or the, uh, 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 the assumption there is that the, the book of the Acts is then going to be the rest of what Jesus began to do and teach. Right? Jesus began to do and teach back here in the Gospel of Luke, but Jesus isn't done, though he's kind of been displaced, he's taken a different place, his work still continues. The work of Jesus happens through the work of the church. Okay? All that Jesus began to do and teach, and all that Jesus continued to do and teach, or you might say this, uh, the, the book of Luke, the Gospel, is about Jesus' earthly ministry, or the book of Acts is all about Jesus' heavenly ministry. Jesus is still ministering. He's still at work. He's still doing the thing, but he's doing it from heaven. But here's the funny thing. No matter what Jesus is doing, he has always used disciples to do it. He has always used people like you and like me to do it. And it has never at one point hinged upon their performance. If it did, it would have been gone, de- dead and gone by, uh, by Peter, right? We, <laughs> the, the kingdom of God would have been absolutely stopped when, when Peter uh, did all the shenanigans that Peter did. But if Peter made it, my friends, you and I can be part of the kingdom as well. This is how the book of the Acts starts out. Jesus began to speak about the kingdom, again, that he was doing. And at the very end, Paul continues speaking about the kingdom in Acts 28. And this is what God desires for us as the capital C church here and now. The Acts 29 church, right? The after the New Testament church, New Testament church. And so disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Okay? Disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. This is very much like what we talked about last week. We're not talking about just a generic truth or truthfulness. What we are talking about is the truth. The salvation doctrines kind of truth. That's what we are talking about. And we're not just, just talking about the content of our speech, though we are talking about content. Content is very helpful. But I think if we're going to start to talk about the promises of God in Christ, which form up the doctrines of the gospel, I think we have to start talking about the promises of Christ in a way that actually reflects the fact that they are in fact promises. In other words, they're not merely suggestions. Or they don't come with question marks. They're declarative sentences, just like Jesus gave us declarative sentences in His cross and in His rising. Those were declarative words to us from God. 
where Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't come and say, it might be finished if... Or He didn't come to say, it is finished? In His words and in His actions, on the cross and in the empty tomb, He declared and He demonstrated once and for all, it is finished. And so we are not just responsible for the content of our speech, but for the very form that our speech takes. This is what I think is helpful to talk about as well. If disciples make disciples by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, then we need to proclaim it in a way that Jesus proclaimed it. And that is with periods and not with question marks. In other words, there's a difference between talking about something and actually doing the thing with speech. And we don't often talk about this way here in the West. This is a little bit more uh, of an Eastern educational thought process. Uh, but it comes out, and actually it came out yesterday. I actually got a funny little illustration. We were sitting at our dinner table. I don't even know how it came up last night. Uh, we were sitting at our dinner table, and my little six-year-old, who did, does what all six-year-olds do, just whatever crosses the mind comes out of the mouth. That's usually what happens. And we were talking about family life, just somehow. And he says... Daddy doesn't say I love you as much as Mommy does. And I was like, oh, right through the heart. And I kind of had to like pause and just kind of like check my pride just a little bit. I was like, hold up. And I was like, well, okay, he's right. He's right. And there's a couple like weird family psychological issues that kind of blend in here to make him right, okay? My wife grew up in a family where like the words I love you were just like filler words for everything. In fact, still having conversations with her parents, it's like the last five minutes of the conversation is telling the other party how much they love each other more. And at times I'm like, guys, this is kind of disgusting. Like, this is too much. Like, at some point it just becomes like words and not like real. And I'm not saying I doubt their love for each other. I'm just saying like, at what, like, is three I love you? So like, what's the code? Three I love yous, I love you more, I love you most. Is that what, like someone's got to finish that trail. I grew up where, to be frank, I mean, I just never heard those words. Like those just like weren't things that we often talked about. Now, I never once doubted my parents' love at all. Like that thought would have never even crossed my mind. I had a great childhood. My parents deeply loved me and cared for me. It was like all around me. And whether my parents, like, I, I think they were just probably just grew up in a generation where that just wasn't thrown around as much. Whereas, like, my wife grew up in a home where it was, like, thrown around all the time. I don't know. There's some weird psychological things that probably we need counseling for. That's probably the truth. But that, suffice it to say, that bleeds into our home now where my wife is constantly telling my kids I love you and constant, like, kisses. And I'm, like, high fives. And I'm, like, what's up, buddy? What's up? Yo, yo, like, what's up? Give me some skin. And I'm, like, I show. And I'm telling my six-year-old, like, I might not, like tell you I love you, and this is what I had a conversation with my six-year-old, I was like, but are there things we've done even today that might demonstrate the fact that I love you? And he's like, well, you did come downstairs and play my favorite video game with me. I said, okay, all right, yeah. I don't particularly like Minecraft. I don't understand it. I have no idea what I'm doing. I can barely, like, see my way around my own house, okay? But I'm there with him to try to be like, Hey, man, what's up? I love you. I, I'm involved in what you're involved with, right? Or my nine-year-old. Like, I go out and, hey, want to go play soccer? Because that's his love language. He wants to go play soccer. wants to go do fun stuff like, like that. So that's all around. And that's kind of what I showed him. Like, so do you understand? Like, I might not express it the same way, but I do love you, don't I? Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 okay. 
So there's a difference between at that moment, I actually had to talk about my love for my six-year-old. But there's a difference between talking about it and actually getting the job done with speech or with even action. And it was helpful for me to be reminded of that, of like, oh yeah, it's probably not enough for my six-year-old to understand my love without me actually telling him and confessing to him, probably even in some really hard moments. I need to reassure him, especially in hard moments, like moments of discipline or moments of challenge. I probably actually need to vocalize and do in the moment with my words what needs to be done and say, buddy, I know you're in trouble or whatever the fact is, but I just want to assure you, I deeply love you. I deeply love you. And in that way, make promises to him that he can hear, kind of beyond the situation. This comes up a lot in my line of work with the idea of marriage. We talked a little bit about this the first time I was here, but marriage is very important that when we talk about marriage, that we talk about the idea of promise. And again, it really has nothing to do with their ability to keep the promise as much as we believe in the power of speech acts. The power of the actions of our words to communicate something, that we can hold on to something, that we can continue to believe promises, is really important for humanity. God knows this, and he doesn't come to us with question marks. He doesn't come to us with conditional statements of, if, then, I will. He comes to us in the form of declarative promises in Jesus. And in that way, we too need to come to people with statements, declarative, proclamatory, preaching kind of statements. I do think there is a New Testament distinction between teaching and preaching, and I think the distinction is this. We can talk about the gospel, right? That's teaching, we're talking about the gospel, but then there actually has to come a moment when we get to the declarative preaching moment, and we have to say, as God would have us to say, the very promises of God to people. This has happened multiple times in my pastoral ministry, and it's about the most shocking times of my pastoral ministry. For whatever reason, because I'm a pastor, the moment I say I'm a pastor, people say two things. They say, I'm sorry for my language, which is hilarious to me, because I'm just like, all right, whatever. And then also, they begin just unloading. And the funny thing is, I never asked for either one of those. I never am asking. I'm like, like, what? Do I just have this look on my face like I'm a sucker for your problems? Like, why do you, why? But they will unleash their full fury of all of their problems on my heart. And, and the reality is, um, especially for those who do this for the first time, I always try to, to catch this moment. Because they're never expecting what their heart deeply wants. What they deeply want is for somebody to hear them and to speak to them words of God. That's why they're confessing in the first place. They're saying, surely you have something to say to me. Surely, in the middle of my bad news, somebody, I dare you, tell me the good news. Either, and some people are suckers for punishment, either give me the condemnation that I feel like is coming my way, that nobody else has the guts to tell me, or do the impossible. Tell me, tell me something from God that's truly good. And so a lot of people confess their weird things to me. Some people have confessed things to me that they've never told anyone else for some reason. The very first time I met them. 
And they're daring me to make a promise of God to them. So you know what I do? I do exactly what God asked me to do. Give it to them. And the look is always the same. If they were crying through the confession, they're crying twice as hard through the absolution. When I look at them square in the face and I say exactly what God wants me to say, on account of Christ, that sin is forgiven. And they never, they never can really believe it. They never can really get their heart around it. Sometimes it takes just time for people just to process that real, like, no way. Like, like, no, not like this. I gotta buy you lunch first, or whatever, like, no, not like this. I've gotta clean up first. I gotta go to church first. I've gotta, there's something I've gotta do. Not like this. Come on, not like this. And I always have to try to reassure them. I always have to try to convince them with promise language. I'm not speaking on my own behalf here. I'm just telling you what God has asked me to tell you when this situation happens, that when we confess our sins, He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if we do sin, we have an advocate right now with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. I'm telling you that. Full stop. Period. Not question marks. Not if-thens. Just periods. And for the first time, you can see like a little bit of hope in some people. It's crazy. But this is what actually I believe the apostles asked for boldness to be about. I think a lot of times we think boldness is this kind of like courage or kind of like gusto or maybe back in my day we called it unction, right? Evangelistic unction. And certainly there is that. I don't want to like, I mean, we need evangelistic unction. But I actually think gospel boldness is having the actual guts to make God's promises to sinners and not just our own conditional statements of religiosity. That, my friend, takes boldness. Not to say your own religious words to try to help people get better, but to actually save a soul by saying God's promises instead. That takes courage. And there have been plenty of times where I've been tempted not to make those kinds of promises to people. Because I want to give them the easy solution of like, hey, I know how to fix that. Your wife's mad at you? I know how to fix it, man. I know how to fix it. Here's what you do. And I launch into things I've done to help people just like get your wife off your back. But it does nothing for the soul. This is what I think when I think making disciples but by proclaiming the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. Not just the content of our speech, though that's very important, but also the very form of the speech that it takes. Declarative statements. Proclamation is what it's called. Declaring the gospel what happened in Mark 5. He got up and he declared the mercy he had received. He didn't just talk about it. He says, God gave me this in Christ and he'll give it to you too. Proclaim the gospel. Why? So that all people will eventually believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. And the reason I like this kind of phrasing is, number one, because it comes right out of Matthew 28, but it encapsulates the Christian life from start to finish. The proclamation of the gospel never stops. And therefore, the belief, the growth, and the hope in Jesus never stops. It's this 
continuous line of disciples making disciples by proclaiming the gospel to one another, the same gospel that we've received. And so we believe. We proclaim the gospel until people believe it. This is this initial process of conversion or regeneration. There's been this kind of new theological fad in our evangelical circles that loves to talk about regeneration, which I love. It's great. It's probably a little bit of a reflection of of Western uh, historical thought, probably coming off of like Catholic theology or easy believism, where it was just do the trick, just dunk and get baptized and you're good, or easy believism where you just raise your hand and you're saved. Probably a, a rejection from that. And so, therefore, it became this really big idea to like walk the aisle and say the prayer and do all the more things that regeneration is known for, right? To kind of highlight this moment in time specific act where we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we trusted our Lord and Savior, right? Have you ever had that language? That's, or, or like back in my day, I was always asked, are you born again? And I knew what that meant. <laughs> it meant, are you regenerated? Do you remember the time? Do you have that date written in your Bible? Do you have that preacher marked in your Bible about the very time and date? We don't have that much of that kind of language in the Bible, surprisingly enough. But what we do have when it comes to regeneration or conversion is actually more of a language of baptism, which is interesting. Because Paul actually did have a moment, didn't he? I mean, he had a, he had a sign, his, sign the date on the Bible kind of moment, right? He could have had Jesus himself sign his Bible. But he never really pointed back to it that much. He never said, I remember that time I was on the Damascus Road. Or, you want to know why I stopped sinning? Or, you want to know why I fight my flesh? Remember that one time I was just on the road to Damascus, just doing my own thing, and God just stopped me dead in my tracks? He actually doesn't talk like that, surprisingly enough. What he always says is, there was a time I was dead. Dead. Dead in my sins. And by virtue of being baptized into Christ, I've been made alive again. You want to stop sinning? Should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? My friends, don't forget your baptism. If you continue in sin thinking grace will abound, you've forgotten that you were once dead, but through baptism into Christ you've been raised. You've forgotten this regeneration moment where God brought you to life through union with Him. Don't forget that moment. And this is part of what we see here in Matthew 28. Proclaim the Gospel, make disciples by proclaiming the Gospel, and get around to baptizing people. Why? Because that's a significant act for the people in the life of the church. It's a significant thing. Now again, I'll tread a little bit lightly here because Brad might have his own views and you guys might have your own views, but I'll give you just a little bit of a snapshot of why I think this is pretty important. And it's listed out here in Matthew 28 as something to do in nature to the mission of the church. Baptism is all about receiving the promises that God has made. If the proclamation of the gospel is that thing that God gives to us in declarative sentences. Baptism is the simple recognition of that reality and allowing yourself in a very passive way to be dunked in water, in physical water, but also into the spiritual realities of that gospel. It's the very gospel given to us in watery form, in good old H2O. A lot of times, I think in our expression of baptism, we, again, kind of probably going back to this regeneration or this conversion motif, we're trying to say that this is about us following Jesus. And though I do think that is true, I think there's something larger that actually God is saying to you in the moment of baptism that's significant. 
It's not about you and what you're saying to God. It's actually more about God and what He's saying about you. How do I know this? Well, He says, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say baptize them in the name of Pastor Hunter or Pastor Brad. Then we could say it's all about us doing our thing, doing the church's thing. Or you're not even baptized in your own name. You're not baptized on your own authority. In other words, you're not raising your hand saying, I'm choosing to be baptized. Submitting to the reality of baptism is first and foremost submitting to the authority of God who says, it's in my name that you're being baptized. It also is by his very authority. All authority is given to me, he says. It's my authority for you to go do this. But also the very picture of itself doesn't reflect anything we've done at all. The very thing, the very picture that we are submitting our heart to is actually His work, not ours. We are being brought into a reality that's His. His death. His resurrection. And again, God is saying more about what He's done, more than what we've ever done. The act is also extremely passive. I have the great opportunity this, uh, tonight of baptizing one of my good old friends who is part of my youth group back in the day, and then all of a sudden decided to run away from the Lord for about 15 years. And just in the last three months or so, his life has absolutely hit rock bottom. Preached to him the promises of Christ, and slowly but surely he's beginning to process it, turn his life over to Christ, believe. And now tonight he's submitting his heart to baptism. And I told him, I said, Justin, you have no role to play tonight. In fact, I will grab you and make sure you don't drown. You're so passive, you could drown... But I will make sure you don't. I am the active one. But the reality is, I'm not really the active one. Because I'm only doing this by authority of God's word. I'm only dunking you into his reality. And the reality, I'll speak words that are not my own. It's pretty crazy. As one person says, the promise given in baptism is seen in that in which it signifies. First, the forgiveness of sins. Union with Christ. Regeneration. Sanctification, in short, salvation. Baptism is given to God's people whereby they may lay hold of all the blessings of Christ through faith in God's Word. This is the picture that we are given in baptism, and therefore it's critically important for the life of the church. And that's not to say that without baptism you can't be saved, right? Justin, who is not baptized, who will be baptized tonight, clearly professes faith in Christ, and that is salvific. We can say that for sure. But also tonight, we as God's people, and also Justin himself, is going to hear the gospel on his body in a unique way that is given to the church that we all can relate with. And it's beautiful. It's another way that God declares in periods the reality of his promises. And so he says, when you're getting about preaching the gospel, make sure you are dunking people into the promises of God through water. Do it in my name. Make it so clear to them that they can't help but have their whole body submerged in my promises. So he wants them to believe, but he also wants them to grow. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but then also teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And this is the nature of ongoing faith. The idea of baptism kind of has the idea of initial faith. The growth here, the teaching them to observe all I have commanded you is kind of the ongoing nature of faith. The kind of present reality of our faith. With which it must be said, just because we're teaching you about what you need to do, you can't forget about what has already been done. In fact, 
there's this great distinction between the root of the gospel and the fruit of the gospel. And you can't have one without the other. This is why Jesus would say in John 5, Abide in me. You cannot grow fruit on your own unless you abide in me. Unless you keep believing into me through faith, you cannot grow fruit on your own. You try to do it by yourself, you'll fail. I will prune you. It'll get worse before it gets better. Sometimes there's a lot of steps backwards. But there's always fruit as long as you're connected to me. It's this ongoing reality, teaching, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And yeah, this is part of the joys of pastoral ministry. So from now on, I get to take Justin, who is just now processing the Gospels. He's heard the promises. He's believed the promises. There's more coming to him tonight. Hopefully he'll continue to hear the promises every week in church through preaching. But also... There's moments where I actually have to clarify, hey, this is how your freedom actually sets you free. We grabbed lunch this week, and he was asking me about some of the process of what will happen on Sunday. And at the very end, he starts saying, like, hey, so I've heard about this because I've grown up in church, but, like, now I'm really struggling with this idea of temptation. How do I know I'm fighting temptation? And I said, let me teach you. Let me teach you about how the gospel sets you free on the ground of your life. That because your acceptance and your love and all the attention that you crave for comes from God in Christ, He's crazy about you. He never stops thinking about you. He loves you deeply. There's not an expense He would spare to reclaim your soul again. Because all of that's true for you in Christ, you don't have to spend any of your heart's desire or affections or whatever impulse you have to try to get love for yourself on your own. So whatever comes across your computer screen or your phone screen or whatever it is cannot offer you the kind of love that God has given you freely in Christ. And so you've got to process the realities of God's grace to you. God's grace is infinitely completing. It satisfies all of your heart and it's free. This will satisfy you for a moment, and it could cost your soul. You've got to think through the realities of the gospel. So at that moment, it's actually really good when you face temptation. Find somebody on your short list that you can call, text, whatever it is, and say, hey, I need the gospel right now. I need something about the sweetness and the goodness of God's love that will remind me it's better than whatever I'm fighting right across the way. That's teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, but it's not divorced from the gospel. In fact, it's deeper into the gospel. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Remember, Jesus is not getting you along by pointing you back to the law and say the law will help you figure it out. He knew instinctively that if you have freedom in your heart through the gospel, that by the Spirit of God that will unlock things that the law can't even come close to do. This is Galatians 5, right? The goodness, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, all those things. He says at the very end, the Spirit brings this fruit, and against such things there's no law. You can't put it in buckets. You can't measure it. You can't begin to say, well, you can qualify the Spirit's love. He gives you five kilometers worth of law, or uh, of love. You can't, you can't do it. What the law says, do this, the Spirit gives an unmeasurable amount. It's crazy. So, The root versus the fruit helps you understand the realities of your need for the gospel. How do the promises of God set you free from both your heart's unrighteousness and your heart's self-righteousness? How does the gospel set you free from things like anger, especially like driving on 270? These people cannot drive. Lust, 
anxiety, worry, fear about the future. The gospel actually sets your heart free from those things. Newsflash. The gospel, understanding Jesus' cross and blood and his resurrection, is the thing to help fight your anxiety about the political landscape. It's the answer. It's the thing that will set your heart free. But also it will set you free from your self-righteousness, your hiding, your pretending, your performing, your excuse-making, your exhaustedness. All of your sub-righteousnesses that you think you're accruing, like your parent righteousness or your political righteousness or your theological righteousness, all these little subcategories of our hearts that we're thinking we're gaining traction with God, the Gospel sets you free from those things. The Gospel allows you to be wrong in those categories and still get to heaven. Praise God. The only people who get to heaven are people who have wrong things in those categories, by the way. Just letting you know. He wants you to grow in the realities of the gospel. But also, he gives us this little bit of hope. He wants you to hope in the realities of the gospel as well. And he gives us this little drop. It's almost, it's almost like a little drop at the end, but I'm telling you, it'll save your soul if you pay attention to it. He says this in verse 20. And behold, look at me. I am with you always. I mean, could you imagine what the disciples were processing at that moment? They had Jesus, and right before he's about to go, he says, guys, look at me. You're not going to believe this when it happens, but I, I need you to know I'm with you. I'm there. Oh, how, oh, how much of a word we need to hear in that today, don't we? I'm with you. John 14, he says, These things, this is Jesus, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit of God, who is with you and all of us, will bring to remembrance and help teach you all the things that Jesus ever said and done. It's great because Jesus was only one person, locked in a body, locked in time, but the Spirit of God is with all of us. And so each one of us, equipped with the Spirit of God, can learn all the things needed for life and for godliness here and have all the hope in the world to be able to make it and thrive and be on mission here in this world. All things, he says, all things, and bring to remembrance all that I have commanded you. We're not missing a thing now that Jesus is gone. We're not missing one single thing because we have the Spirit in all of us. The Spirit is reminding you of God's promises for you but also assuring you of His ongoing work through you. He is working to you, but He's also working through you as well, as you begin to process the realities of the Gospel and then begin to open your mouth and speak to other people. It's incredible. And this is immense hope, is it not? Jesus hasn't left. Jesus hasn't left the church high and dry. The reason that the church is successful is because Jesus is successful and He's here. He's with us. The Spirit ensures Jesus' work here on earth. It's going to happen. As sure as Jesus is seated in heaven, He is here amongst us through His Spirit. It's crazy. It also leaves us without excuse, doesn't it? So why are we afraid? Get to know the Gospel... You yourself have your heart baptized. Don't forget your baptism. Don't forget to immerse your heart in the realities of Jesus. 
Let the gospel be in your heart in such a way where it actually frees you on the ground of your life. And then don't forget this hope that He's still with you here and now, working to you and then working through you. So this is, this is working. This is going to go. This is going to happen. And so it's real simple. By the way, I, it's complex, isn't it? I always tell our church people, it's complex, but it's not really complicated. You have one thing to do this week. You've got, you've got one job. And I know, I know like, you've got family, you've got life, you've got work. But Jesus is really only doing one thing in this world. He's making disciples through you. That's what he's doing. So let's, let's be about it. And you're like, well, how, how, how am I going to do that? Well, what have you received? What have you been given? Could you, could you speak about that? And by the way, in case you're thinking like, man, I don't know, I'm just not competent enough. This is a theme at our church. It's a theme for my life. God will use your confession more than he will ever use your competence. Get that, get that tattooed on your arm. God will use your confession more than he will use your competence. Peter was not competent. But he had a lot to confess, did he not? Paul, all right, that dude is pretty competent. But he had to confess a lot, his incompetency in a lot of ways, so that he might boast in Christ's competence. And at the very end of his life, he was still raising his hand, hand saying, I'm the worst sinner I know. So let that be a lesson to us as well. The only people that God uses are incompetent people because that's the only people that God has to choose from. So he uses us in our weakness arms us with the reality of the gospel, with his pre- the presence of his spirit, to teach us these things, and then sends us out imperfectly, and the work goes forward flawlessly. So my friend, can I ask you this? Who's in the wake of your life? This is, this is, a, this is a Eric Seipism. Some, some of you know Eric Seip, right? In the, who's in the wake of your life? Like a boat makes a wake, right? Makes a, makes a trail of waves behind you. Who, who's there? As you're going forward, as you're, as you're on mission, who's behind you? Who's following you? Who's, who's coming after Jesus because you're there making the promises of God in Christ's name to them? Who's there because you're teaching them to connect the dots between these promises and their real life issues that set them free? And then who's, who's in your life as you remind them that Jesus is more here than they would ever realize. Who, who's there in your life? And you might have nobody. And I would say, perfect. You're a perfect candidate to be used tomorrow. Because God isn't calling qualified people. He's not calling competent people. He's calling people like you and like me who flub this stuff all the time. And he's saying, but I'm probably going to give you tomorrow, maybe. So can you take tomorrow? Can you take what's given you? And can you live on mission? Can you do it? Of course you can. To say not is to not believe the very promises of God that he has made to you. But the reality is, like, I guess the question is, like, will you make space for it? Will you prioritize it? Will you make it a big part of your heart? Will it be the thing that wakes you up in the morning tomorrow? I hope so. Let's pray.